and take out your Bibles, will you, to Matthew chapter 28. We have come to it. We have come to the end. We're going to be looking at verses 16 through 20. The last words recorded for us by Matthew in his gospel. And if you would indulge me in one more prayer. Father God, I ask you to help me to preach your word well. Spirit, come, soften the hearts and minds of the hearers. Give me strength in voice, in mind, and in body to lay before us all your beautiful call. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, what if we had eyes to actually see the world like Jesus sees the world? It's a goofy movie, but there's a dystopian movie called They Live. I don't recommend you can run out tonight and see it, but it's an interesting movie. The premise is that these aliens have secretly come to Earth, unbeknownst to us, long ago, and integrated themselves into our society and taken over. But they mask their presence using a certain frequency so that we can't see them, nor anything that they are doing, and the subliminal messages that they're feeding us. We can't see those things. However, if you put on a certain pair of sunglasses, a special pair of sunglasses, I know it's goofy, but if you were to put on a special pair of sunglasses, you get to see the world as it actually is. And it looks something like this. You saw signs that urged consumerism. You saw billboards that urged obedience. You saw advertisements that urged conformity and commercials that endorsed passivity. And you were able to see the aliens among us. Definitely a mediocre movie. But a really interesting premise. Very fascinating premise. Let's play with that just for a second. What if there was a way to see the world spiritually? What if we could place a a set of glasses on our eyes and see how the world as God sees it. What would it look like? What would spiritual warfare look like? What would helping our neighbor actually look like? What would evangelism look like? The last thing... LaShonda Calloway saw before she died were people stepping over her. Calloway had stopped in a shop in a convenience store in Wichita, Kansas, and was stabbed in an altercation. As she lay dying there, a surveillance camera recorded no less than five people stepping over her to continue to shop down the aisle. One even stopped to take a picture with their camera before moving on. 
perhaps evangelism, our evangelism, might look a little like that. People dying all around us. And maybe we're stepping over them to keep going in our life. Perhaps pausing in certain circumstances and then moving on. I think as I was putting this together, feeling very convicted, I think most of us can relate to that in this room. So today, I want the last words that Jesus spoke in Matthew's gospel to not condemn us, but to encourage us to not step over. Look with me at verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And they saw him and they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. If we just step back a little bit, just to put this in context, the two Marys that saw the risen Christ did as he said. They went back and they told the disciples to meet Jesus in Galilee. And verse 16 says they obeyed and they came. And look what it says. It says they saw Jesus and worshipped him. But some doubted. Did you pick up on that? But some doubted. Interesting. This is not the typical word for doubt. It's actually a very rare word for doubt. It's only used one other time in Matthew. It's used in chapter 14 when Jesus comes walking to the disciples on the sea. And you remember that. Jesus uh, asks, beckons Peter to come out, and he actually jumps out of the boat and stands on water for a while. And then he looks around. And he starts to sink. And you remember what Jesus said to him? You of little faith, why did you distazo? Why did you doubt? That's the Greek word there. And that Greek word means reluctance or pause or hesitation. Why did you hesitate? Jesus is saying to Peter. And that's what some did when they saw the risen Christ. They saw him and they hesitated to worship. Like Peter, they jumped out of the boat. They came to the mountain. They listened. But when they got there, they weren't 100% in on the risen Jesus. They hesitated. And how, that is how many Christians approach the Great Commission here. We hesitate. We believe in Jesus. We believe in what he says. We believe we should obey. But when it comes to evangelism, most of us in this room, myself included, hesitate. We doubt. We distazo. If I can extend the metaphor 
We love the Great Commission, but like Peter, we start looking around at what people might think of us, of what sacrifice that might mean in our life, of our reputations. And we hesitate at opening our mouths. My hope is that as we look at this great commission and the four alls that are contained therein, all authority, all nations, all commandments, and all the days, that the Spirit might make all of us in this room a little less distazo, a little less hesitant to share. So I want us all to look at verse 18. There we have our first all. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Be encouraged, Jesus is saying. I have all authority. Because of my death in my resurrection, because of my resurrection, not just my death, but my resurrection, I have been given all authority. Now, to be frank, Jesus always had authority. He had authority. We've seen it throughout Matthew these past couple of years. He had authority to heal. He had authority to forgive sin. He had authority to judge. He had authority to cast out demons. We've seen his authority throughout Matthew. But now he adds the word all. All authority. As Sean O'Donnell puts it, it's not a new authority, but a new level of authority. Because Jesus obediently humbled himself, he has become great. That's, that's one of the principles that we've been looking at these past couple years in, in this upside-down kingdom we've been looking at, right? Down is actually up. Humility leads to greatness, exaltation. Lose your life, what do you do? You actually save it. Suffering, what does that lead to? Glory. It's an upside-down kingdom we live in. And Christ's humility leads to his authority. Listen to how Paul puts it. This is exactly what he's trying to get the Ephesian church, the Ephesian believers to understand. Listen to how he puts it. He, he, he's imploring them to understand that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, putting on the sunglasses, that you may know what it is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards those who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ, this is the resurrection, when he raised him from the dead, and here it is, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, all authority, all power, and all dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Paul is being very complete in describing his authority and power. Paul is praying that they and we are given the sunglasses to see the authority and power that Jesus has been given because of his resurrection. 
because he was willing to be obedient and humble himself in his death. This is Philippians 2, brothers and sisters, right? Because he was willing to do that, what did God do? He ex- therefore, he exalted him to the highest. That every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that should encourage us and that should embolden us in our evangelism. I think we forget that. Daniel Doriani writes, we have all the authorization we, we need for the task. We need never hesitate. We need never apologize. Whenever we speak of Christ, we are within our rights. That's the principle that Paul is evoking when he calls us ambassadors of Christ in 2 Corinthians 5. We're ambassadors. That, that, that term is loaded with you go with the authority of the one who sent you as the power backing it. Whatever that ambassador says to that other country is backed by the full force of the country that sent him. So our U.S. ambassador goes and says something to another country, comes with the full force and authority of the United States. And that's what makes when our ambassadors go and they say something so powerful. Other nations that don't have that power and authority, when they come and say, you better do this, what are you going to do to us? It comes with the full power and authority of the United States. We go, we proclaim the gospel comes with the full power and the full authority of Jesus Christ, who's given this right hand of God. That should embolden us. We should remember that next time we see somebody lying in the aisle. And that leads to a few therefores I want to mention. Since Christ has been given all authority, therefore, we do not fear Satan. He is a defeated foe. He is a bee without a stinger. Yeah, we might tremble when we hear the buzzing. We have to remember he's a defeated foe. That's what John is trying to help us understand over and over again in his letter when he says, he who is in you is greater than he is in the world. That's what he's trying to get at. Remember, brothers and sisters. Second, therefore, since Christ has been given all authority, therefore, we do not worry about our evangelistic success. We don't worry about that. Do you know what the biblical definition of successful evangelism is? Do you want to know what the biblical definition is? Faithfulness. That's it. Just being faithful to open your mouth. That's success in God's eyes. We're successful if we, do, if we pause our lives enough to speak to somebody about Christ instead of stepping over them. That's biblical success. Leave the converting to the Spirit. Be faithful in speaking the gospel. His, his righteous life his substitutionary death in his powerful resurrection. 
that leads to the therefore in our text. If you look at it in verse 19, it says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. All nations is our second all. John Piper calls the authority in verse 18 our search warrant. I love this. You know, when the police get a search warrant, they are given authority, authorization to enter into places that they normally couldn't go. And But John Piper says, verse 18, the authority that he's been given, and that he then gives to us, sending us, is our search warrant into the world. That authorizes us to go and make disciples everywhere. Mark Ross, in his commentary, writes, The early church had difficulty grasping this. Jesus said, Make disciples of all nations, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But in the beginning, the apostles hardly budged from Jerusalem. To be sure, they preached with power, they healed many, and conducted themselves with great courage whenever the authorities threatened them. But they had to have men raised up like Stephen and Philip and Paul to thrust them out into the world. He writes, we are much the same, if not worse. We know about the Great Commission, but sometimes we hesitate to go, to share our faith, even with close friends, he says, let alone venturing into more radical paths. Brothers and sisters, go does not necessarily mean to Albania and Slovakia. It could mean that for you. It could. But it doesn't mean that primarily. Go simply means share the gospel with the person that you bump into when you leave church today. That's what going is. And when you hesitate, remember that you've been given the authority. You've been given the search warrant. You've been authorized to make disciples of all nations. You've been authorized to go. You've been authorized to explain the gospel. The full weight and power of God is with you when you do that. This is the first step in making disciples. is just sharing the gospel. Simply explaining the good news. One of the visions for the missions ministry here at this church is that an elder will go and visit one of our missionaries every two years. We have eight missionaries that we support. So every eight years, we will be where the missionaries are. And, and, and our purpose is fourfold when we go and do this. We want to encourage the missionaries with our presence. We want to serve them with our gifts. We want to, we want to witness firsthand their ministry. And then we want to come back and report to the church. That's why we go. I had the pleasure of doing this with the Bonds, who are church planters in Namibia before COVID in 2019. Lord willing, Elder Henry Chung will be visiting the Bergens later on this year in Austria. And I had the pleasure of going up this past week and spending the day with Doug Palmeter up at the University of Maine in Orono. 
I met with his pastor and talked, talked about Doug's involvement in his church. And then I went on campus and just was with him when he does what he does. Wanted to see what he does. He had four appointments with kids. We sat in a booth at the student union. And these kids came and they sat down. And we just talked. The first one's name was Jordan. Brand new Christian. A nine-month-old in the faith. And we read scripture to him. Had him read scripture. And we, we encouraged him in what it means to live authentically and transparently as a believer. We sat with Mike, a huge 320-pound lineman on the, on the UMaine football team. Very Italian, first-generation Italian. He's not a Christian. But we talked to him and read scripture to him and explained to him the difference between the Catholic faith that he hated growing up and what real biblical Christianity is. We spent another hour with Zek, a non-Christian who wants to be a wildland forest fighter. Zek challenged us again and again and again on the reliability and veracity of the Bible. And we simply read scripture to him and explained as best we could. And then we met with Tim, a six foot five German football player, heavy accent. He's very interested in who Jesus was. He was leaning in the whole time. He had amazing questions about how did Jesus come to earth? He actually said, did he float down from heaven? He didn't even know about the virgin birth. So we explained it to him, and we read it to him. He thought the apostles were these supernatural beings. We said, no, they're just like us. God spoke through them. Incredibly insightful questions about heaven and hell. We did our best with scripture to just answer him. I left after four and a half hours, tired, but deeply fulfilled. Have you ever felt that? Like when you're right in the Lord's will. And on the ride home, I thought about the, the verse I was preaching this week. And I thought, my goodness, here the Lord set this up four months ago. So I do the very work I'm preaching on. What a good God we serve. How the Lord arranged for me to go and make disciples of all nations, an Italian, a German, an American. And I thanked him for the privilege. Thirdly, we are to teach them all I have commanded you. Teach them all I have commanded you. That's the critical all. Because at the heart of being a disciple is obeying what the Lord commanded. The late pastor James Boyce wrote, the third universal all of the Great Commission is the command to teach those we have evangelized. Christ commanded us to teach them to obey everything I've commanded you, which means that 
for all Christians, all Christians, we are lifetime learners. And learning must follow conversion as well as membership in Christ's church. This command was particularly important in a, an extremely superficial age, he writes. Instead of striving to teach all Christ's commands, many are trying to eliminate as much of the teaching as possible, concentrating instead on things that are easily comprehended and less objectionable. But a core such as this is distorted, he writes. It is usually grace without judgment, love without justice, triumph without suffering, and salvation without obedience, he writes. Salvation without obedience is a distortion of the gospel. There's no salvation without obedience to Christ's commands. That's why Jesus makes it part of this commissioning. Have you ever thought about that? Why, why this all? Why isn't it just go and share and, and convert? No, he says go, share, leave the converting to spirit. But when it does, the spirit does convert, teach them all that I have commanded you. Lean in on these people. Spend time. I realize that whenever this subject is brought up, there are those that object to this. And they say, that sounds too harsh. It's too much law, too much law, too much law. Well, if you think that, brother and sister, then you have a problem with Jesus. Because Jesus says that. He says, if you love me, you will what? If you hold to my teachings, he says, you're really my disciples. John the Apostle wrote the same thing. And by this we know we have come to know him. How? If we keep his commandments. How do you know somebody is a believer? How do you know somebody has the spirit inside you? How do you know somebody is regenerate? How do you know? Anybody can say the gospel. The elders sit in, in interviews and people get the God. People can say the gospel and not be regenerate. How do you know if you're regenerate? If you have a desire to obey Jesus. If that desire is not there, as R.C. Sproul says here, if you're not inclined to obey Jesus and have no desire to follow his commands, it rather says something about your standing before him or whether the spirit is inside you at all. I remember being shocked in one of my seminary classes years and years ago when my professor stated that salvation is a lifelong process. I was like, what? Are you kidding? What, what seminary am I at? And he then went on to explain. I think that's what Jesus is inferring here. It's not walking down the sawdust trail in 1952 and you're good. That something happens in your heart and you actually read the, the, the commands of Jesus and you begin to want to do them. Do you know that feeling, brother and sister? Have you ever had the experience of years ago reading it, thinking it's law and feeling the condemnation and then reading it years later and going, I want to do that. I love doing that now. Disciple-making is not a one-time event, but a lifelong process. And finally, there's the fourth comforting all. 
And that is, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The literal reading there is all the days to the end of the age. There are two aspects of this promise that I want us to see today. Two aspects of this promise that I want us to see today. The first is one that we're familiar with. We, we see it from our perspective. We get it from our perspective. He is with us. I preached on this a couple weeks ago. His presence is with us is a powerful, powerful, comforting thing as we go through this life. And it's something that we don't tap into enough. And Jesus is saying it here again. As a matter of fact, that is a theme, it's a meta-narrative throughout the Bible, is God with us. That's a comforting thing. The Russian novelist Vladimir Nobokov said the only way he writes a novel is on three-by-five cards and with pencil. When the interviewer asked him, why pencil? He says, so that I can erase. Brothers and sisters, God never erases. When he says a promise, it's in pen. It's never gone. He never goes back on it. And he has said here, he will never leave us with you always. R.C. Sproul writes, knowing that Jesus is always with us, there should be no place on this globe that we're afraid to go. If he were standing beside us and said, come, go with me, we would go wherever he led, wouldn't he? Wouldn't we? However, since we cannot see him, we do not always live as though he is with us. But this is his promise, he writes. If he broke it, it would be the first one he ever broke because Jesus does not know how to fail at keeping his word. The second aspect of this I want us to notice. I want us to see this promise from a fresh vantage point. I want you to see what he is saying here from God's vantage point. I will never leave you to the end of the age. We get that. That's comforting for us from our perspective. I want us to consider God's perspective for a moment. This promise is not just for our benefit. This promise is for God, too. God wants to be with you. Have you ever thought about that? He says that, and we think that's really comforting. That's really comforting. And it is. But the other side of that coin is, he says that because he really wants to be with you. Intimately. Forever. I mean, that is the, the, the meta trajectory of the whole Bible, isn't it? We're with him. We're created to be with him in the garden. We sin. He mercifully puts us out. But what is the rest of the Bible after chapter 3 in Genesis all about? God coming to be with you. Think about it. Tabernacle. Right in their midst. Right in the middle. When you read Exodus, think about how he has organized his people around him so that he is in his midst. The temple. In the midst of his people. More permanently, tabernacle, taken down, put up, temple, permanent. 
Pentecost, intimacy, more intimately with us. He's working his way back to the way it really was supposed to be. He wants to be with you. I'll say this. He wants to be with you more than we want to be with him. That's the truth. And he makes that promise for our comfort, but also because he's going to be with us, because that's what he really wants. And I can prove it. What are you willing to give up to be with God? Jesus says multiple times, what does he say? If you want to be my disciple, what do you have to do? You have to deny yourself, your whole self. Come die with me, he says. Take up your cross and follow me. He's asking us for everything. If we're honest, that's where our struggle lies. But it's at the core of being a disciple. He asks for all of us, and what do we give him? Some of us. Here's how I know God wants to be with us more than we want to be with him. He gave up everything. That's what the gospel is all about. That's what the gospel tells us. God says he loves the world so much, he gave what? His beloved one son who came and lived a life that was hard for him to live, that we struggle living, being perfect under the law. And he earned the righteousness that we can't. And he earned being the perfect sacrifice. And he went to the cross willingly, laid down, and took our sins. I mean, I preached last week or the week before on on Eli, Eli Law Matsubathani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? An eternity of hell for us, he endured. And he died. And he rose again. He loved us so much, he was willing to go through all that. He wants to be with you more than we want to be with him. That's what the gospel is all about. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And for your commission. And I pray, Spirit, that you impress on us the importance of not stepping over those that we come in contact with. Help us to do that. Remind us. Don't let us hesitate. Help us to open our mouths. We are weak. We need your strength. In Jesus' name.